This is One More Time, and I am Sean Smith. There is little more powerful than a story. A story can inspire or cause fear. It can enlighten or deceive. Stories are journeys that we take on a topic. Sometimes we follow the journey of a hero. Other times we may be drawn to the villain. Many times a good story is just a good story. We can dissect it and try to discover why and assign value to our thoughts, but ultimately we just like it and that's all that matters. Band directors are often known for telling stories at the podium or during rehearsals. And the stories can range from experiences that are inspired by the music that is in front of the musicians at the time, or sometimes it's just something that happens in rehearsal that triggers a memory, and many times it's just a tangent that comes out of nowhere. This podcast strives to tell stories in each episode on a particular topic, but often when we are out getting our interviews, we get stories that aren't on the topic at hand at all. This episode will highlight some of those stories, and we have titled this installment Storytime. A man who always has a story is Scott Schwartz, the director of the Sousa Archive and Center for American Music. And as always, Scott will provide a great story on John Philip Sousa in his segment, From the Archives. Welcome to the Sousa Archives Live yet again. This is Scott Schwartz, the Archivist for Music and Fine Arts, and I'm here with Zia Fox, who is helping steer through the last of these interesting presentations. What questions do you have of me for today? Mr. Sousa and his bandsmen always seem to keep a positive attitude, no matter what challenges they faced on the road. Was this always the case? His first civilian band, which kicked off in 1892, went until January 5, 1920. And on that day, two-thirds of the band went on strike during a matinee performance in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. They had come from um, Tennessee, the evening concerts in Nashville on that Saturday. The next concert was scheduled for Monday. Now, the band arrived in Asheville, North Carolina at 7 a.m. on Sunday, and they only had a half hour um, to switch trains. Um, the passenger train and was scheduled to arrive at Winston-Salem at 3 p.m. that afternoon was canceled and the cars carrying the band were attached to the back of a slow-moving freight train which had no dining services at all. The freight train did not arrive in Winston-Salem until 3 a.m. that Monday morning. But when they got to the hotel, there were no rooms available for the band, except for Mr. Souza, the female soloists, and the solo cornetist, Frank Simon. And the remainder of the group retired to hotel couches, chairs, and a few pool tables. The next morning, the band's members were quite irritated and had what they referred to as an indignation meeting. And a majority voted to show their displeasure by not playing for the matinee concert that day. When the band finally decided to go on strike while on tour, 
how did Mr. Sousa react aside from disbelief that it would work? Well, imagine this. At concert time, um, the stage, as the curtain went up, held 19 musicians and 38 empty chairs. Mr. Sousa came out to the stage, took a bow, and when he turned around to face the audience, he stared at Frank Simon and asked, where is my band? Of which Mr. Simon replied that he had no idea. And of course Frank says, if ever I saw fire in a pair of Spanish eyes, it was at that moment with Mr. Sousa. A concert with 19 instrumentalists rather than the 59, leaves much to be desired, according to Simon. Sousa would remark about the beginning of the overture, I'll never forget the chord to my dying day. There were no tubas, no French horns, no drums, and only skeletons of the other sections. Nineteen very best musicians, frantically played cues for as many of the missing instruments as they could, the music remained painfully thin. Essentially, the 19 musicians limped through that concert, and as Mr. Simon states, the audience was mostly filled with school children who were probably not aware of how the band normally sounded. So, Quite frankly, not many people realized, at least in this audience, that there was something amiss. Mr. Souza was absolutely annoyed, and after the concert, he instructed his personal manager, Jay Sims, to never hire any of the strikers for future tours. Percussionist Gus Helmicky who was apparently considered indispensable as the bass drummer of the band, was the only exception. How did he continue to go on that tour later in 1921 after firing more than half his band? His 1921 band consisted of 64 players, of which only 11 were from the earlier band. And those 11 players were the ones who went on stage to do that matinee concert in spite of that difficult situation. Now, the interesting thing is, while most of the bandsmen were fired, Sousa remained good friends with all of them throughout the rest of his life. And those very same musicians continued to speak favorably to Mr. Sousa and about him, even after being booted from the band. And that in itself is quite extraordinary. Therein is the unique strike of 1920. Rehearsals are focused on the work at hand, improving the music and musicians. The words you use as a band director in a rehearsal can alter the narrative and decide whether it is a good or a bad rehearsal. 
Craig Kierkoff offers his thoughts on word choice as a band director in our two-minute rehearsal technique segment. I do a whole rehearsal technique session, and it's called, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. So I'm trying to find the right words, the right analogy, the right metaphor that will motivate them to get to that next level. But along with the, you know, with the whole, uh, an important rehearsal technique is to say in rehearsal, that's better today. And almost always in my rehearsals, it's always followed by now, we need to do this. And I put it into percentages. We're 50% of the way there. We've got 50% more to go. And there's something about, I've discovered, even in rehearsing dynamics, if, you, if I look back to my trombone section and I say, it needs to be less here. I kind of don't know what that means. But up as the trombones, I need 10% less sound. It, they, they make the adjustment immediately. So if I quantify in terms that they can understand, and everybody can understand 10% less, that, then they're willing to do it. And also the other thing is, the key to those kinds of things are not asking people to play softer. It's asking people <laughs> to take their sounds and fit it inside of those sounds. So there has to be a moral, ethical reason why they have to play less, because no one wants to play less. But if they understand the musical reason for doing that, it works every time. And nobody gets frustrated. Or if I may look at the group and say, you know, we just have to protect Anna on her flute solo, protect her. I could say, less, less, less. No, it's still too loud, play less. It never works. No, we have to protect her. Then there's a moral kind of directive that, which they understand. So it's not what you say, it's that, but it's how you say it. For the main portion of our episode, you will hear a few stories. Many of the names you will recognize, but most of them ended up talking about their journey in the profession and how they got where they are today. Our first story comes from Michael Colburn, who is a retired commander of the President's Own Marine Band, and his story comes from that time. He is currently the band director at Butler University. So uh, one of my favorite uh, stories, uh, based on one of my experiences as director of the Marine Band, happened uh, shortly after I became uh, a conductor, actually. I joined the band in 1987 as a euphonium player, and in 1996, uh, I became an assistant director. And it was shortly after that that promotion that I was conducting our chamber orchestra at the White House, and uh, we were doing uh, an arrangement of Ray Fawn Williams' English Folk Song Suite. And I felt a, a tap on my elbow. We were in the middle of the first movement, and I turned around expecting to find an usher or one of the members of the staff at the White House, and it was President Bill Clinton himself, who had come out of the, um, uh, the stateroom that he was in um, to uh, come into the foyer and uh, approach me about uh, the English folk song suite. And I'll never forget, you know, when I turned around and saw his face, he said, uh, oh, this, this is the English folk song suite, right? This, this is one of my favorite pieces of music. And, and this movement, it is uh, 17 come Sunday, but I, I think the next movement is my Bonnie Boy, right? And you know, in the band version, the oboe has a solo in that, but, but in the orchestra version, is it the violin? And I was just incredulous. Here I am, a, a young, new, inexperienced conductor, really just trying to make a good impression at the White House, and suddenly I'm 
speaking with the leader of the Western world about the finer points of uh, the English Folk Song Suite. Um, so I did my best to answer his questions and uh, did this, of course, while I was conducting, which was a little disconcerting, to say the least. But we had a nice chat, chat about the, uh, the music, and it was an episode that really uh, has always stayed with me and really meant a lot to the musicians in the orchestra as well, because... Um, for one thing, when we're there at the White House providing music, whether it's uh, with our chamber orchestra or with our band, oftentimes we're providing kind of background music, uh, almost uh, musical wallpaper, if you will. And it's easy to start thinking that people are not really listening all that carefully to what you're doing. Um, so this was a very clear reminder to us that not only was someone listening, but that someone happened to be the president of the United States. Um but the uh, the other thing that has always stayed with me about this story was the uh, level of detail that President Clinton remembered about this music. I mean, here was a piece that he could not have played for probably more than 30 years. Probably the last time he played the English Folk Songs Suite, uh, it might have been when he was in high school playing at a all-state festival for maybe Francis Macbeth as a guest conductor. And, uh, and yet he remembered all of this detail about this music. And, um, and and cared enough about it to come out and, and want to talk to, uh, to me about, you know, the, the details of this uh, particular setting. So um, the, the fact that music had remained such an important part of his life, even though clearly he had many other things to think about, many other things on his plate that day, the fact that he wanted to take a few minutes out of that busy schedule and, and talk music was something that was really very meaningful to us. Our next story is from Frank Battisti and he relates how he got his first jobs without actually ever having to apply for one. And credit needs to be given to Will Sugg, a grad student at the University of Illinois, for collecting this interview. Well, as I said, I, uh, when I was growing up, uh, and w when I graduated from Ithaca College, all I wanted to be all my life was a high school band director. That's mm -hmm. it. I, I, I was not looking for a job. Uh, and so in 1967... When Kenny Snap, I don't know if you know that name or not, but he was a band director at Baldwin Wallace College. He took, Walter Beeler uh, retired at Ithaca College, and they hired Kenny Snap to become the the band director uh, at Ithaca College. Mm -hmm. So the the, band, the the dean at Baldwin Wallace College, where that's where Ken, Kenny Snap was. Um, contacted the dean at Ithaca College and says, you, you just stole my band director. Uh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And he mentioned, why don't you call Frank Battisti up at Ithaca High School, talk to him. So that's what he did. I went out there, was out there for one day, and they offered me the job. So I was at Baldwin-Wallace College for a year and a half. And then uh, uh, a year... Uh, I was there for one year, it was Christmas time, I was back in Ithaca to see my mother and dad, and I got a call from Harvey Phillips, who said, Gunther Schuler wants you to come to the conservatory in Boston and start the wind ensemble. Well, you know, Gunther is one of my great heroes, and so when, when, when he offered me that opportunity, I jumped at it. I mean, I'm one of the few people who, at the age of almost 87, still does not have a resume of my experiences because I've never applied for a job. I've never mm -hmm. had, I've never needed one. And, and, and by the way, in between all this, mm -hmm. for one year, uh, I traveled back and forth from Boston to Ithaca, New York to start the, the Ithaca College Wind Ensemble. When they went from a concert band to a wind ensemble, 
Oh. I started the wind ensemble at Ithaca College, and I commuted for one year between Boston and Ithaca to do it. The next voice may sound familiar. It is Robert Boudreau, who we featured on an episode a couple of months ago, and here's another story from him. See, I mm-hmm. wound up playing at the Metropolitan Opera also. I didn't tell you that. And the reason is because Izzy Blank was the principal of the Metropolitan Opera, trumpet player. And hmm. there was an opening, and I was sitting next to him in the Goldman Band, and we became very good friends. And so he said, Robert, would you like to audition for this opening? And I said, sure. And so he took me aside and gave me all the music that I was going to, because he sits in on the audition, okay? And Fritz mm-hmm. Reiner was coming in to do the audition. And so here I'm at the audition, and he's already coached me very seriously. Uh, mm-hmm. There were 125 trumpet players who were auditioning for that one position. And, and, but he had coached me, and he said, Oh, Dr. Reiner, would you like to hear Robert play this? Oh, how about this, Dr. Reiner? You know, he had it all worked out. So I yeah. got the job, okay? <laughs> but that's what it takes. It often takes that kind of people knowing you and yeah. helping you. you know, it's, mm-hmm. That's what the world's about. In an upcoming episode, you will hear from Tyler S. Grant about his piece Pace Line as part of source material. But during an interview with him, he revealed to me how he got his first composition published. At 13, I actually, I, the, the true story is that I, I did not do the diplomatic way of submitting where I you know, sent a physical copy to a publisher and they then forwarded it to the right people. I actually knew that Brian Balmagis was the editor. And I got on whitepages.com and found his, his phone number. And, and he was so kind to not hang up on me as a little 13-year-old. And it's, it's a crazy story, but it's absolutely true if you ask him. And, uh, and that's how I established that relationship. And after we went through the revision process of that first piece, he decided to take a chance on it and, and publish it. And after... It received a performance at Midwest in 2009. It was my first time at Midwest, first performance here. He decided to uh, take a chance on me a little bit after that as well and keep writing. And so we've, we've had a long relationship together, and uh, it's, been, uh, it's been great. And in many ways, because I don't study composition formally, he's been that uh, like a composition teacher and mentor to me over the past 10 years. So that's how that relationship got started. Most of us in the profession know Dr. Tim. He's been around for many years, giving leadership clinics and many other things to help our profession along. He is also a vice president with Con Selmer in charge of education, and he explains how he got that job in the first place. So, so people go, well, how, how, did you, how did you get here, right? How did you get to be a vice president of Steinway Musical Instruments? So this is the point, and it, it's, it's, uh, it's transferable, it's relative, it's relevant, to everybody, you can do it. Anything from picking apples to, uh, I don't know, mechanical work on a car. They asked me to come um, uh, about 21 years ago. Whatever, the main difference, rhetoric. Would I do something for the sales force? I hate to do that stuff. I'm not good at it. I like to be with young people. Yeah, I'm a teacher. And then I oh, no, no, come on, Tim. You just got come on. And I said, okay, I'll do it on one condition. You don't pay me. Because I don't want to feel bad when I walk away that I took my... Okay, whatever. So I come up, did it, and they, they gave me a jacket, you know. I went, and so my summer on it and all this sort of thing. So I went home. Now, what would be the first thing I would do? 
I wrote the thank you note, right? Dear Mr. Pisecki, thank you. It was a pleasure, blah, 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 blah. Now, this is for email, yeah? So the thank you note goes in the mail as he writes a letter and puts in the letter, this is one of the best sessions we ever had. Here's a check for $2,500. And they pass in the mail. All right? So now I open the envelope. Windfall. What do you think I did? This is like question answer. What did I do? You sent it back. You're right on the... Yes! I tore it up first. Oh. <laughs> put it in put it in a note and said, uh, Mr. Brzezicki, I thought you were a man of your word. Ha, ha, ha. I said I'd do it for free. Thanks for the jacket, blah, blah. Sent it back. He calls me. Says, do you have any idea what you've done to our accounting system? We have no idea how to take money back. And ha, ha, ha. Would you stop by and see me someday? Sure. So uh, then I keep getting these calls from him. Tim, when are you going to come by and see me? So finally, I was close in Chicago. And he goes, please, I'm serious. I really want to talk to you. So I come down. He takes me to the office. He goes, we want to have an educational director for summer. Oh. I said, I know a lot of people. I can, I can help you. He goes, no, 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 no. We want you to do it. And I said, you know, I'm not giving up my workshops, right? I get to hang out with people like you. He goes, you don't have to give up the workshops. You can do whatever you want to. Just you be part of us and so forth. I said, let me go home and talk to my wife. He goes, no. I said, what do you mean, no? He goes, you make the decision right now in my office. If you say yes, we're on. If you say no, i got some other people I'm going to call. Can you feel the pressure? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I said, how about if we do it for a year and then we'll see? And he goes, okay. So we shake hands. And I said, I need to sign something or anything? He goes, you just did. Your handshake. If your word's no good, I don't want you. Okay, right? Then he gets on the phone. He gets on the phone. He goes, Deb, uh, Tim's going to be walking out here. He said, uh, give him the box that I gave, gave to you to give to him. And I walk out. She hands me a box with stationery and business cards with my name on it. <laughs> Do you think he knew? Or... Maybe he had that for the other yeah, people the he was going to call, right? Yeah. But what if I hadn't torn up the check? What if I'd have kept it? Maybe it was a test. And $2,500 I could have used at that time too, by the way. <laughs> I could have really used it. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Essential elements was a mistake. Or I thought it was a mistake, but it came out of a thank you note. The source material piece for this month is titled Maze of a Thousand Mirrors. It was composed by Benjamin Dean Taylor, and you can find information on Ben and this piece in the podcast show notes on our website. Sure. So Maze of a Thousand Mirrors uh, was commissioned by the Southern Indiana Festival of Bands, which is a really cool, ginormous high school uh, conglomerate from ensembles from Bar Reeve, Lagodi, Mitchell, North Davies, North Knox, Shoals, and South Knox. It was like 280 kids on stage. Big band. Joyce, Joyce Kim Rohr heard my piece at a Indiana Music Educators IMEA conference and loved my music and talked to me afterwards about a commission. And of course, as a composer, I'm always interested in commissions. And I said I'd be honored and flattered. And, and so then this came about. So they brought me down the year before, because this is interesting, to do a little clinic with the students and to get their ideas and their thoughts on the piece. And one of them was like, hey, what if, could you like write a piece of music where we take the music and we play it and then we flip it over 
and we play it backwards and upside down. And I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. You know, it sounds pretty unique. It sounds like a nice challenge. Maybe I will, you know? And yes, sure enough, that, in- that turned out to be one of the main ideas of the piece. So at two different points, they turn over their music. letter C to D, although this one's not upside down. This one they just play, they literally bounce off of the, the repeat sign at, at D and then play it backwards. Uh, so they're just reading the music backwards. They didn't have to flip their page over for that one. Yeah, there are lots. I tried to put lots of little mirrors in the piece, you know. Uh, for example, yeah, letter F, uh, which is the trio section, yeah. Now we're going to do those same pitches in reverse. They were interested in in a march, and I am too. I've never written a march, and I love Sousa marches. I, I, I just really enjoy his marches, and, and so I wanted it to still reflect a march form. So it's still your typical, like, you know, opening, trio, grandiose closing march. And and even with the key relationships, even the end of the trio. Yeah, from J to K, they literally are fl- they're picking their music up and they have rest so that only the percussion's playing and they're picking their music up and flipping it over on their music stand, just that page of music, uh, and and then playing it backwards and upside down. Just that 16 bars. And and so obviously, you know, everything's really limited in range so that nobody's uh low C turned into a high A kind of thing, uh, or, you know, in the tubas. I couldn't, everything had to be center to the staff uh, so that flipped over it would still work. And the harmonies, of course, had to be kind of limited there. But I think, I think I'd hit on, you know, a way that, to make that work. of flipping music, a percussion break obviously has to be inserted. 
was the melody. It's just now condensed because I didn't want to do the whole A melody again. And then, of course, we end in major. Why not? Consider following us on iTunes to make sure you don't miss anything if you enjoyed today's show. If you want to stay current with Illinois bands between episodes, follow us on Facebook or join us on Instagram at Illinois underscore bands. Find us on Twitter at Illinois bands. And of course, watch us on Snapchat at Illinois underscore bands. You can always check our website for more information, www.bands.illinois.edu. The executive producer and host of today's show is Sean Smith, and the staff of the podcast include co-host and occasional producer Daniel Dresser, co-host and producer Stephen Cohn, Christian Arkin, and Mary Allison Mahachek, who is also our script supervisor. The mixing of the episode and recording of segments is done by Sam Litt and Zia Fox. Of course, none of this would be possible without the Illinois Band's faculty. Stephen Peterson, Director of Bands, Linda Morehouse, Senior Associate Director of Bands, Beth Peterson, Associate Director of Bands, and Barry Hauser, Associate Director of Bands and Director of Athletic Bands. Illinois Bands is part of the School of Music at the University of Illinois and the College of Fine and Applied Arts.